Welcome to the Living Well podcast from Morneau Chappelle. I'm your host, Mark Hennick. Last week, we talked about the work-life blur, how when we've been working from home for so long, everything at work and at home just blurs together. Now, we've talked about workplaces a number of times on this show because it's one of the main facets of our of the many facets of our mental health and well-being. We spend more waking hours at work than anywhere else, if not now physically, then certainly mentally. This week, we're going to take this a bit deeper. We're going to explore what it takes to create a supportive workplace, whether you're physically at work or whether you're at home, and what the uncertainty of the last year has taught us about what people really need from their work. We're going to meet Andrew Fass. He's an expert in organizational dynamics, bullying, and performance optimization. I'll chat with him and Paul Gianfrido, the president and CEO of Mental Health America, about their recently released 2021 Mind the Workplace report. But first, Chester Elton is co-author of the multiple award-winning New York Times and USA Today best-selling leadership books, All In, The Carrot Principle, and The Best Team Wins. His books have been translated into more than 30 languages and sold more than 1.5 million copies worldwide. His latest is Anxiety at Work, Eight Strategies to Help Teams Build Resilience, Handle Uncertainty, and Get Stuff Done, and that's on sale May 4th. I talked with Chester about how corporate culture has a significant effect on our mental health. The number one issue for us is anxiety at work. You know, it's, will I have a job? Uh, Is my work good enough? You know, am I going to be able to teach my kids I'm working from home and all the things that I'm sure you've heard a thousand times? Well, it was very interesting. We just finished a book on leading with gratitude. And we found that one of the great methods that people can use to tamp down their anxiety is gratitude journals. You know, you can't uh, be in a state of anxiety and a state of gratitude at the same time. We found some really interesting work in the uh, American military that they would teach their, their, you know, rangers, their special ops guys, block breathing and count your blessings, which we thought was fascinating, you know. Tell me, tell me a little bit more, actually, because I think this could be a really useful skill for listeners. Tell me about what block breathing is and, and count your blessings. Tell me about what those two things are. Yeah. So first about the blessings, uh, a lot of research done, whether it was at University of California, Berkeley or, or Penn, on the physical action and the discipline around writing three to five things at the end of the day or the beginning of the day that you're grateful for. And they, you know, they did all the test groups and they found that people that did that on a regular basis, you didn't have to do it every day. They, they encouraged it to be, you know, um, four to five times a week at a minimum that they slept better, that their relationships were a little deeper, that what it did is it relaxed your mind before you went to sleep, that it was a great way to start your day in not worrying so much about what you didn't have, being grateful for what you did have, you know, um, Mm. As you know, the research, when you uh, do the death scroll at the beginning of the day, when your alarm goes off on your phone and you get all the news feed, 90% of it is ridiculously negative, you know? And so how do you break that cycle? Well, gratitude journals are a big part of that. Now, the block breathing, there's been some fascinating work done on that. It's a very simple process. You know, for those of you that are listening, you can you can do this immediately. It's you breathe into the count of four. So you, you hold it for four. And then you breathe out to a count of four. It's a very simple process. And then you do it three times. And what, you know, 
psychiatrists and psychometricians and so on, it resets your brain after three times. Mm -hmm. Now, you may choose to do it four or five times. That's up to you. This very simple exercise, a count of four in, hold it for a count of four, breathe out, reset your heartbeat, reset your brain, and it has a very calming effect. Isn't that fascinating? Mm -hmm. So now in... In workplaces, especially, I mean, um, managers have been trying to figure out how to manage people remotely uh, uh, for the last year in particular. And that's been anxiety provoking for both managers and the employees. Research has has uh, been starting to show this. Um, how can they implement these kinds of uh, strategies uh, to help their employees, to help themselves uh, in being in building more supportive workplaces? Well, I love that question because the, the, the subtitle of our book, it's Anxiety at Work. Eight strategies. So we have eight that we found were particularly effective uh, strategies on how to build resilience. You know, there's a lot of talk about how do you build resilience, handle uncertainty, which is the biggest cause uh, of anxiety, and and then get things done. You know, so how do you do that? Mm. Well, it, it's interesting. I love your podcast, and, and we launched the podcast because we decided we were probably the only authors on the planet that didn't have a podcast. <laughs> and we uh, we got to interview all these wonderful leaders, whether they had dealt with anxiety or they'd made it a priority in their organizations, you know, counselors, um, you know, doctors and, and, and psychiatrists and so on. One of the most impactful conversations we had, a wonderful guy named Chris Rainey. In fact, you should get him on your show. He runs a, a big organization in London, HR Leaders, and uh, suffered from anxiety from a very uh, early onset of his career, hid it from everybody, found that as soon as he admitted that it wasn't that he wasn't feeling well, it wasn't that he didn't have time, that he really did suffer from anxiety, that everybody rallied around him. So this idea of trusting people, that once you admit that, what you find is almost everybody suffers from anxiety, right? And they can all relate mm. to you. And rather than shun you for being weak or not being able to get the job done, they rally. They rally. So as we were talking to Chris, it was really interesting. He said, well, what advice do you have to leaders when someone does come and talk to you about anxiety? What do you do? And he said, it's such a great question because you know what? When you're suffering from anxiety, you don't want your leader to solve your problem. You want them to do one thing. Listen. Mm -hmm. Isn't that powerful? Just mm -hmm. listen. You don't have to have all the answers. They're, they just need to talk about it with someone. Now, Mark, here's the one data point I hope no one will forget from this interview. And I'll quiz you on it. What percentage of employees do you think, and this was a global study, feel comfortable talking to their immediate supervisor about mental health or anxiety at work? What do you think the percentage is? Oh, I would say it's very few. 10%. Less than half. 10%. 10%. Wow. Yeah, way less than half. So there's still this stigma in the workplace and why I love your podcast to help remove that stigma that if I would had gone skiing and wrenched my knee and said I needed a couple of days to recuperate, not a problem. I got the flu, not a problem. I got the, I, I got the virus. I'm going to be dead. Not a problem. You say, you know what? I am mentally, emotionally, and spiritually exhausted. I need a day off. Huh? Mm. Mark can't hack it. You know, we're demanding here. We demand a lot of our people. You just got to gut it out. 
Now, how much of this do you think is, you know, and this was certainly my experience where a lot of the fear was in me. It was in myself of what everybody would think of me. They think I'm crazy. They think I'm different if I opened up about my own struggles with mental illness. And fortunately, that turned out to be the opposite. I'm sure there were some people who thought that, but it it ended up being a net positive where a lot of other people opened up too. But in some ways or in many ways, do you think that this is a test of the organizational culture of a company uh, when people do open up how the company then responds if they do, in fact, shut it down? Because not only does stigma exist, discrimination does exist, too. Sometimes people don't open up and they really shouldn't open up uh, because it's not a safe environment to do that. So is this a test of the the emotional health of the company, how well people are supported when they open up? Absolutely. And, And brilliantly stated. I mean, I couldn't have said it better. In fact, I wish we'd interviewed you for the book. That would have been brilliant. It's, uh, you know, it is. It's and and you know, a lot of writing. You know, Amy Edmondson, uh, the Harvard School of Business, wrote a whole book on psychological safety, and that's what we're talking about. Do I feel safe enough? Do I have a meaningful relationship to the point where I can talk about that? Because it's a really hard thing to talk about. Now, it's generational mm-hmm. as well, no doubt about it. You know, I'm the tail end of the baby boomers, and and. In, in my career, you would never, ever talk about, you know, any kind of mental, and the, the term was weakness. And, and I will tell you a very, very personal story. I remember I was a, grew up in sales, crushing quotas. I'll never forget here in New Jersey, you know, and um, I'm, I'm talking to my, my dear friend who was the CHRO of our company. And I was under a lot of stress. I was under a lot of, you know, pressure. I was doing two or three different things for the company and I was going to, and, and I start ranting, you know, I know you find that hard to believe. We don't know each other. Well, and yet I started to rant, you know, and I'm driving you know, like 120 miles an hour down the garden state parkway, you know, as you, as you do. Right. And she goes, Chester, 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 listen, you need to take a breath. You need to take some time off. And you know what? You need to see a counselor. And there was this long pause. And I said, Kay, absolutely not. I would never in a million years do that. She said, Chester, it's all confidential. No one will ever know. I said, I don't believe you. Not for a minute. You put that in my jacket, you'll end my career. Mm-hmm. And I gutted it out. And I lost all my hair. I did survive. <laughs> you know. And I, I make light of it. But I will tell you, I remember that conversation like it was yesterday. There was no way. Sure. I was going to let that happen. Now, I had one of my children went through a really severe anxiety and depression. And that's where I got converted. Because all the things I told him that I told myself, buck up, get out of bed, cheer up, gut it out. Doesn't work. Never has, by the way. Mm Yeah. yeah. Now that was interesting that your that your chief human resources officer mentioned that to you even then, um, and that really raises a flag for me of, of the responsibility of senior leadership uh, of your your C suite, your executives, your your boards, even uh, in setting the tone for creating uh, psychologically healthy and safe workplaces, supportive workplaces. So what what then can leaders be doing better to encourage that in their workforce? Excellent question. Because you'd think, hey, she was one of my best friends. If there was one person that I thought I could trust, it would probably be her. And yet I did not. So what we found in the best cultures and the best organizations is when the leaders talk about their vulnerability, they talk about their struggles with anxiety. And I'll tell you what's been great about the pandemic, if you can say anything was great about the pandemic. It was the great equalizer because everybody had to work from home. 
So all of a sudden, you know, even if you're a senior executive, you're trying to figure out Zoom schooling. You're worried about an aged parent. Maybe your spouse or partner has asthma. See what I'm saying? So that was a great equalizer. When senior leaders come out and admit they're struggling too, the leaders need to model the behavior. They need to give people permission. And the best way to do that is vulnerability. My thanks to Chester Elton. His latest book is Anxiety at Work, Eight Strategies to Help Teams Build Resilience, Handle Uncertainty, and Get Stuff Done. And that's on sale everywhere May 4th. When we come back, we're going to take a look at how easily we become a product of a toxic corporate culture. The Living Well Podcast is brought to you by WellCan, a free mental health and well-being resource offered by Morneau Chappelle. At wellcan.ca and on the WellCan app in the App Store, you'll find information, assessments, and resources to support your mental health. WellCan resources are supplied by Morneau Chappelle's expert clinicians, as well as through partnerships with some of the biggest companies from across Canada and around the world. And now back to the Living Well podcast and your host, Mark Hennick. In this segment of the show, we're going to meet Andrew Fass. Andy is co-CEO of Accordant Advisors, and as founder of the Fass Foundation, he focuses on supporting not-for-profit organizations concerned with workplace well-being. We're also going to be joined by Paul Gianfrido. Paul is the president and CEO of Mental Health America, the leading community-based mental health nonprofit in the United States. Paul talked with me about how the principles upon which the community mental health movement was built extend to corporate cultures and the communities within workplaces. Yeah, yeah, if you think about this, um, in the face of a lot of disruption, we find comfort, we find strength in the community around us. So whether or not people sometimes are talking about families and the strength some people derive from families or loved ones or neighborhoods that, that have been talked about that are so critically important uh, in in determining the, the success of our lives, basically the, the, the people around us as we're growing up, the same thing is true when it carries over into a workplace. And to me, one of the saddest things is that when you look at this chain of bullying, it's that when you're going back up the chain in the other direction, often, often, people in the next row up, supervisory roll up, you know, take personally the, the concerns that, that somebody may express to them. They feel like when somebody says, I'm not doing well here, right? And there's, I'm not feeling fully supported here. They, they take it as a personal attack on themselves and then lash mm. back at the individual instead of stepping back and kind of listening to that and thinking, well, then how can we work together uh, to, to make this better? I think frequently people would find it's not specifically something in this individual supervisor, supervisee relationship. It's the culture of a company, for example, or it's some things that are around them that may not be in either of their control, but together they can bring under their control. And unfortunately, people tend to react, you know, personally and say, well, gosh, you know, I was attacked from above. Now you're attacking me from below. And, uh, and that's why we, you know, in the survey do see a lot of supervisors who are saying the same thing that supervisees are saying. They're not feeling as if they're being supported, whether or not, 
you know, people above them or around them think they are giving them support. This is fascinating. I'd like to bring Andy in on this point. Has this been your experience working, Andy, with so many companies, so many employees, and yourself personally, uh, wherein uh, the bully, I suppose, uh, whether or not it's whether it's intentional or not, um, could be potentially a, a lack of knowledge, a lack of competency in how to behave in appropriate ways, or are bullies just bad people that need to be weeded out of organizations? They they take the uh, the lead from uh, from who they report to, and I find that most organizations where uh, where there is a where where it is toxic, it starts at the very top, mm. and it just works its way down. And to get ahead in an organization, uh, uh, unfortunately, you have to play or you're expected to play that uh, that game. Um, uh, I often say that it doesn't take a total transformation of an organization. So if you're a leader of a small division, you can kind of set the example. Just because you're being bullied doesn't mean you have to bully somebody else. Mm -hmm. In all likelihood, you will shine. You will become the star because it does translate. And I know it does because we've worked through that. In, uh, in developing uh, in developing collaborative uh, cultures, what can the chair of the board do? The boards of directors to really change the tide of their organization and create a more supportive workplace. There are five things. One is the level of trust. People are being given more autonomy and more authority, and there has to be trust there that people are going to deliver on that. The second is a sense of stability and security and safety, including psychological safety. And the third is is a sense of purpose beyond becoming more X percent profitable this year over last. Hmm. The uh, fourth is a real interesting one. Fourth one is a sense of efficacy. That's a real interesting one. One of the biggest stresses and frustrations is the bureaucracy and the, um, the the reason that they're at a particular meeting or why, why do we have to do it this way? And they answer back with, that's just the way we do things around here. And then the, the fifth one, and I think the most important one, is the ability to speak truth to power. And so if I were a CEO, those would be my priorities. And Paul, how do you think, you know, I've seen some uh, anecdotal um, research in the past that teams that go through hard things together uh, become more bonded as a result. How do you think relationships between individual employees and their managers uh, will change for better or worse once we eventually do start to come out of this uh, very trying time? When you and Andy have referenced this already too, but as Andy said, there's the opportunity that we've had during the last year, you know, silver lining and all these deep dark clouds has been that we've all gone through these feelings, a lot of these emotions together. We've gone through the worry and the stress uh, together. The, you know, the losses that we suffered, um, all of this, a lot of us have done together. And I think it opens the door for, for people to humanize, you know, again, they're, they're coworkers and, uh, and, you know, the, the more we do that, the better we are at that. And I think coming out of this, I think the better we will be in terms of our, our mental health uh, moving forward. We've got to get back to this idea of family and community, as we were talking about at the beginning. And, 
you know, and if we can, if we can do that, if we can effectively create support environments around people, I think it'll make all the difference. And, and I think it's a possibility, uh, you know, would that it would have come immediately out of the pandemic, but I think over the course of the past few months, it's been, people are seeing this more clearly and they're seeing it throughout, you know, levels more clearly on how important it is to support not just workers, right, but to support the people who those who happen to be doing that work for you and really kind of see people as people. My many thanks to Chester Elton, Paul Gianfrido, and Andrew Fass. And thank you, listener, for listening to the Living Well podcast for Morneau Chappelle. I've been your host, Mark Hennick. Until next time, take care and live well. You've been listening to the Living Well podcast. Mark Hennick is our host and executive producer. If you like what you heard, subscribe to the show. There's no cost involved. You just hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a comment and a rating to let us know how we're doing. For more information about the show and the WellCan project, visit wellcan.ca. The Living Well podcast is produced for Morneau Chappelle by Mark Hennick and Eye Contact Productions. I'm Dave Trafford. 